Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Dave Pell, the self-described managing editor of the internet and writer and publisher of Next Draft, a curated newsletter of the internet's top 10 news stories of the day. Dave is also the author of the new book, Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking News and Nervous Breakdowns in the Year That Wouldn't End. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. So listen, before we get into your curation of the internet, which sounds like a pretty big job, I want to talk about the new book. So it's called Please Scream Inside Your Heart. And, you know, as I was reading it, you know how they say that thing about how as you get older, every year is shorter because it makes up, you know, a smaller slice of your life. I feel like 2020 was sort of the exception that proved that rule, right? Like it felt like the year that would never end. So, you know, going through it, you cover obviously the politics of it, impeachment, the pandemic, you know, Black Lives Matter, the biggest election of our lifetime, a slide towards autocracy. So as someone who was trying to consolidate all of these hugely impactful things that were all occurring simultaneously, how did you do this in such a way? Because I'll tell you what it vividly did for me was made me relive the year, which was what I would say is almost a wake up call. Now as we're almost a, you know, a year past the last election day, almost two years to the beginning of the pandemic. So take us a little bit through what you were hoping to get out of putting all this together and hope what readers, you know, will get out of it. I really think of 2020 as sort of being the earthquake and what we're experiencing now as being all these aftershocks, you know, and hoping to avoid a tsunami at some point. So I really wanted to uh, do a few things with the book. On the most surface level, I wanted to create a time capsule for people because it was such an incredible year, both in terms of overwhelming news, our relationship with the media, and obviously all the personal stuff with the pandemic and quarantine. So that's sort of the basic structure of the book. But much more importantly, I really wanted to channel some of the lessons that my parents had given me in my childhood, and more importantly, that my dad had issued these warnings from about 2015 on, but definitely going into hyper mode in 2020. And I wanted to do that trying to use humor in a fast pace that I've gotten used to doing on my newsletter all these years so that people would have a little bit of uh, sugar to take the medicine down. So really the moment that I decided to write the book and the reason I wrote the book was you know, throughout 2020 and even before, my dad kept warning about Trump's messaging primarily and also his actions. And he was issuing warnings that if I issued them, you know, I'd get written off immediately as sort of a left-wing snowflake and I'm out of control and I'm hysterical. But my dad was like a full-on hero during World War II. He was the only member of his family to survive. He crawled on his hands and knees into the Polish forests lived there for four months on his own in the winter, got a gun. Only because of that gun could he join the partisans and started blowing up trains. He was anything but a liberal. He was probably a Republican for most of his life. And just like toughest guy you could possibly imagine. 
So he's the least hysterical person on earth, basically. So when he started warning me in about 2015, hey, Trump's speeches remind me a lot of Hitler's speeches in the lead up to World War II when I was a kid. And you know something? Everybody laughed at Hitler too and thought he was a big joke. Then I started getting worried. The moment I decided to write the book was right before the quarantine hit. We were walking to lunch together on a rainy day. And for about the 50th time in 2020, he said, I don't get it. Why aren't young people out in the streets? Don't they see that this guy is trying to damage democracy? And I said, you know, I think people are concerned about it, but people in my generation in America just don't think what happened to you could ever happen here. And he like stopped in his tracks and turned to me. I still remember it was like a rainy day. And he said, you think when I was a kid, we thought it could happen there. And as soon as he said that, I thought, wow, man, this is like a message a big, scary message in a way about a slide towards authoritarianism that people need to hear. And it's coming from the last of a generation of people who have seen it for what it is and know what they're looking at. So I really wanted to sort of channel that message in addition to the other parts of the book, which are both political and personal. So let's stick with your dad for a second, because I mean, both my grandfathers fought in the war. My grandmother worked at the Pentagon in 1943, was probably one of the first employees to work there, right? And I think about this too, because not only what your dad went through personally, right, hiding in the forests and eventually escaping, but even for folks here, right, a lot of them either lived through World War I or remembered as children. And then, you know, their next big event was the Great Depression. And then they had World War II. And probably not unlike your father, you know, they grew up in houses without running water or electricity. So by the time World War II came around, right, they were pretty tough people. Snowflake was the furthest thing from them. And then, you know, they sort of enjoyed the fruits of all their hard work and sacrifices. They got into the 50s and 60s. But now, you know, as your dad looked at this, he saw it or he'd lived it. So how do we communicate that? Because, I mean, I've often said this. Eventually, we'll have to get on the streets. We saw it summer of 2020. It was around a particular event. It was around justice and, you know, justice obviously not delivered to George Floyd in that moment on that street corner, but certainly to the officer that killed him. But, you know, otherwise, it's like, you know, I live in suburbia. My TV works. My Netflix works. My phone works. You know, gas is a little expensive. Food's a little more expensive. Thank God my kids are in school again. You know, and so it's so easy for us to turn it off. And I think a lot of folks would rather do that. Right. I think there's an interesting irony that's happening in both in 2020 and today's America, where it's really easy to turn off the big message, which is we're facing people who are attempting to ruin our democracy, but it's impossible to turn off the incoming signal that hits you 24-7 with news stories and news alerts and sort of gives you a feeling of overwhelm. So it's interesting that the more we seem to be overwhelmed by news, the less we seem to be cognizant of these big single issues. I think it's a disservice in a lot of ways by some of our news providers. A lot of news organizations did an incredible job in 2020, and I totally celebrate those journalists in my book. But, you know, you look at cable news today, and it's really just a series of panels telling you stuff that makes you feel great. Or terrifies you without a call to action. Right. And it's mostly just people talking about the stuff as opposed to reporting stuff, which is a trend that I think is pretty dangerous because it widens the definition of news and it allows people like Newsmax and Fox and Breitbart to call themselves news because they're saying, hey, all we're doing is having our people have a panel for two hours, you know. But I do think that the influx of news and 
the connection to being a well-informed republic like everybody wants to be has actually become less of an overlap these days, you know? And the best example I can think of is like news notifications. It's sort of crazy that you're walking around with your kid or at a soccer game or doing your job or whatever, and all of a sudden you get a buzz in your pocket and it's like there's a mudslide in Peru or Biden said one thing or there's this one little issue with the infrastructure bill that's being debated. The idea that you have to know that right then is, of course, ridiculous. And it's part of the same problem we're seeing with Facebook and other internet companies that want to have your engagement 24-7. They point fingers at each other, but they're both in the same business, really. And I always tell people, you're not Batman. You know, there's no reason why you need to be made aware of anything more than like 20 feet from you at any given time. And we defeated fascism with one newspaper landing on our stoop every day. We don't need our pocket vibrating 24-7 in order to be well-informed. In fact, I think that overwhelming influx of news and information actually makes us less able to really focus on the big picture. And we focus on these micro issues every day instead of this huge issue like the big lie, the slide towards authoritarianism, the efforts to keep people from voting, like all these sort of telltale signs of what we've seen happen a million times in other countries. And not to harken back too much to the time of, you know, your father and my grandparents, because obviously those were extremely difficult times in their own right. But when it comes to media consumption, I just think about like a person, you know, who gets that newspaper, right? They read the newspaper and then they put it down and they go about their day. And maybe even if they're not conscious of it, it's sort of cogitating, you know, maybe they see something else during the day or that, you know, they talk to somebody at their office or at the store or, you know, they have them over for afternoon coffee and they discuss it. So there's more than just like a boom here's what it is, and here's what I'm going to tell you it's about, as opposed to black and white newsprint. You'd think about it. Your wife thinks about it. Your friends think about it. Maybe guys at the VFW Hall or whatever. Now it's not only delivered 24-7, but it's already provided the perspective for you too, so you can go and parse out what it is you want to hear, what you don't want to hear, what you want to see, what you don't want to see. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think debates are the best example of that. The second a presidential debate ends, Somebody comes on and tells you, here's what they said and here's what it means, you know, as if you don't have the ability to process whether or not you think this is a good guy or this is not a good guy, which ultimately is your choice when it comes to a president, you know, at least it used to be before we only voted on party lines. So, yeah, telling people what to think is a problem. And it's not only that others are telling you what to think for a few million of us like you and me who are on Twitter 24-7, we also feel a compulsion, whether we like it or not to feed the machine so that we feel like, hey, we need to have a tweet or a thought right away. You know, yesterday we found out that a nine-year-old kid was the latest victim of that Astro World concert tragedy. And I thought, even reading that, I felt this urge, I need to have something to say about this, you know? And you can see on social media the second we learn that people pick their sides. You know, some are, oh, the concert promoters, some's Travis Scott, whoever they can find to blame and say, you see that now it's even 10 times worse than it was yesterday. But really the story there, that the normal emotion of that is sadness, that this terrible thing happened to a little kid and his family, regardless of all the other externalities or the blame game. But Twitter doesn't lend itself to that, right? We want to be the quickest and the funniest and the most insightful and the most pithy. So we shoot it out there. You know, it really is like a dopamine drug. It's hard to give up those hits. 
I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm, you know, most of my book, in fact, when I'm talking about media consumption, tech consumption, it's I'm coming out right at the beginning and saying I'm like you, but worse. I'm not <laughs> like a psychologist telling you, hey, your behavior is crazy. Why do you do this? I overshare. I overtweet. You know, I'm like the sickest addict, you know, when it comes to news addiction. Right. It is totally a dopamine hit for everybody on there. And the more extreme thing that you're responding to or the more extreme thing that you can say. And then sometimes, you know, something takes off that you could never have expected. And then sometimes people tack you for crazy things that like it just was a throwaway and, you know, the wingers come after you. But like in a perfect world or in Dave Pell's world, what would media consumption look like for us in 2021 going into 2022? Because there are so many ways to plug into the matrix. And again, in so many of those ways, I should say, are only echoing the things that you already believe. Yeah. I mean, I think in a perfect world, the average news consumer just consumes a lot less news than they do, which is interesting coming from me because I'm out there every day going to 75 sites and sending out a newsletter. But that's like I'm professionalizing it. If I see a bad news story or whatever, I have to think, how am I going to cover this? I'm not really getting too emotional about it because I'm sort of lucky I have a job to do. My job is to make my readers feel something, not for me to feel something. And I noticed in 2020, as friends of mine who weren't really even particularly into the news, in fact, so uninto it, they didn't even really read my newsletter, which was sort of a drag. <laughs> Happens all the time. I can't get my wife to listen to this podcast. Yeah, it's brutal. I'm going to email her after this and tell her how excellent I was. <laughs> but, you know, even people who weren't into the news in 2020, they became totally obsessed with it. And I noticed that my friends who weren't like me out there every day, having something to do with it, were getting a lot more depressed by it and a lot more overwhelmed by it. And, you know, it was pretty universal, really. You know, it was such a strange year because we had all these platforms coming at us at once. And then all of a sudden the news was like in the air we breathed. It actually, our lives depended on getting some information. And I think I felt really alienated. Like I'm sure a lot of Democrats and writ large liberal democracy fans felt during 2020 and now that how can people be seeing and hearing what I'm seeing and hearing and still see this guy as a president. He's doing a terrible job. People are dying from COVID. He's trying to overthrow elections. We're like a laughingstock abroad. I get why you're angry at me. I get why you're angry about the economic divide, but I don't understand why you look at this guy and see a president. So I sort of, with that question in mind, I reached out to some friends of mine who run this organization called the Center for Constructive Communication at MIT. And they sort of study social media and they have like incoming feeds from Twitter that they're analyzing all the time. And they had this one feature that was really cool where they compared the top stories being shared by people who follow Rachel Maddow versus people who follow Hannity and Carlson. And I said, hey, my book is sort of broken down to the 12 months plus of 2020. I said, hey, can you break this down month by month? And when I looked at that data, which is really incredible and it was nice of them to do, but it's even though guys like you and me always talk about the information divide and the media divide and everybody's heard it a million times, when you actually see the data of these stories in which as the story narrowed and we really became focused slowly on one or two massive issues, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter and the election, that there was almost no overlap in the stories being shared. Not just that it was different views on the same story. I'm talking about just no overlap even on the main story itself. And I realized that throughout that year and to a, a large extent now, we're sort of screaming into these voids where we're angry, we're totally furious, 
And, you know, I send out probably 10,000 angry tweets in 2020, but none of those tweets are touching anybody I'm angry at. So ultimately, that's the main media lesson I think people need to understand that we are being manipulated right now, mostly by the Trumpians for sure, but everybody starts to play into it after a while where we demonize each other and we caricaturize each other based on these media images of each other that actually have no overlap. So I always say I've never met anybody in real life that I hate as much as the caricature of the average Trump voter. Because in real life, you talk about your kids and Little League and all these other things. But in a media world, when we're so separated because the economic divide and the regional divides, it's just a perfect playing ground for people who want to divide us. So I'd want people in their media appetite to consume less media. And when they feel hate bubbling up, to start thinking, and whose benefit is this hate? Who is this benefiting? Whichever side of the aisle you're on. You know, it's interesting you bring up the soccer game. You go to your kid's soccer game. Everybody's sitting there. You know, talk about the weather. You talk about the team, right? Oh, eh, lost again, whatever. I mean, I work in politics. I live politics. But I would never, ever bring it up to anybody. Right. I would never inject that into a conversation on a sideline on a Saturday afternoon. But to what you're talking about, everybody wants to think that's what happens as opposed to, well, actually, most of us are still pretty regular human beings, which is we all feel the enormity and the stress of the world in which we live in today, which is a new world, both politically and every other way, right before Trump and before the pandemic and everything else. And now, to your point, it engages in conflict. It's trying to create conflict. I mean, look, we're guilty of it. Most of what we do is to drive a contrast message against a particular candidate, whether or not it was Donald Trump or somebody else. And conflict tends to generate more attention, as we've seen. And we know this from whether or not it's the YouTube algorithm, whether or not it's the Facebook algorithm, that darker messaging drives a hell of a lot more traffic than, you know, the kid who saved the baby seal. Right. We should all want to read more about the baby seal and the kid. But instead, it's like, what's the worst possible thing in humanity we could find today? I mean, Dave, how many freaking serial killer things are on Netflix? Right. <laughs> like for every octopus teacher, there's six serial killer things. Yeah. And that octopus teacher sort of freaked me out a bit, too, actually. But, you know, you mentioned the soccer game. When you're at a soccer game, most of the parents there are obsessively wanting their kid's soccer team to win, you know? I used to coach a little league team with a guy who was definitely a Trump voter. He was a sheriff. He was packing heat all the time. And we knew that we had totally different politics, but it just never came up because there was these other things that were much more important, our kid's game and them having a good experience and not letting the other coaches mess with us or whatever. And now we have this huge divide. But one of the issues is that with the income spread, which I think is at the root of everything, you know, today's Little League, at least in my area, is separated into the travel ball kids who can afford to do travel ball and then the local kids who can't afford it that are doing traditional Little League. So we're not having that overlap. Whereas, you know, I don't want to bring everything back to the Holocaust, but I really do think the messaging is so similar today. You know, when my parents were kids, it was much harder in the early days for the Hitler marketing machine to spread the anti-Semitism and the sort of Jewish stereotypes because you lived and worked with Jewish people. So they'd say, hey, the Jew is responsible for this, that, and the other thing. And then you go, well, I'm hearing you, but my buddy Dave is a Jew and he seems like a pretty great guy. 
Well, I mean, look, the neighborhood where my dad grew up on Long Island, it was Jews, Italians, Greeks. It was a lot of different ethnicities, but, you know, they were all proud of their heritage, but they all shared that pride across food, friends, whatever, right? It wasn't just like, oh, you know, George is Greek and I'm Jewish, so therefore, you know, we can't be friends, right? In fact, somehow, you know, maybe all their shared experiences of being, you know, either immigrants themselves or children of immigrants or whatever it was, had actually created a community not driven them apart. Yeah. And that is, I think, although it seems impossible, that's really the only solution to this media divide is to have people actually somehow interact again so that these caricatures that we have of each other can't continue to dominate. It really is very difficult to send that message out and have it land if I'm hanging out with the person that they're saying is responsible for all of my problems. But right now we don't hang out and we don't interact. You know, I always thought in the early days of the internet, you know, I'm an angel investor and have built a lot of sites and stuff. You know, we thought we were building the exact opposite of what we ended up building. You know, we thought that the internet was going to break down these barriers. I used to teach high school in Brooklyn. And when the internet was just first coming up, I thought, wow, if you could create like a site, I called it the learning bridge that let teachers and students exchange opinions about lesson plans or books they read, all of a sudden you'd have busing without having to deal with the politics of busing, right? You'd like share information. I've always thought that any content is multicultural as long as you have a multicultural group discussing it, you know? But that's just so rare these days. And somehow the internet ended up dividing us further. And I think one of the ways is, is you know, we were talking about the Twitter stuff earlier, how even when you feel like you know better, the motivation to put something hateful or to put something that gets retweeted more, to criticize the other side. If I criticize liberal America, I get like two likes, you know? If I criticize Trump, I get like 300 likes. So it's hard to just pull yourself out of that, I think. Well, and I think the other part too, that one of the things that I struggle with individually, and I think we struggle with too, is that those conversations that you're talking about that show that we're not that different are essential. What I haven't figured out, maybe you have an idea, is how do you scale that? Because right now, the only way to do it effectively is one-on-one. -on -one. And anything you try and scale, you know, you talked about the group at MIT, or, you know, let's have, you know, civil discourse and all that. It's all absolutely worthy and worthwhile, but like doesn't get a lot of attention because people are like, eh. even people who want to do that are like, eh. you know, it sounds like group therapy to me. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is that like reality is like this severe disadvantage on social media because, you know, on social media, you have the advantage of testing a message and then honing that message until you know exactly what's going to spread among a certain group. And it can be a full lie, but you know what works. And then you feed that message that people want to hear into their feeds and they're happy. They're getting the benefit of feeling like somebody sees things like I do, and then they're getting more likes when they share it because you've pre-vetted the message, right? That's sort of the root of birtherism, really. Trump didn't give a shit about birtherism. He just tried every message in his Twitter feed for a few months, and that was the one that caught on the most. So like everybody else on Twitter, he said, okay, I'm going to keep talking about this. I want the juice. So lies spread so much more aggressively online and negative information spreads so much faster because the creators of that information aren't hampered by reality. They can just hone a message that works regardless of what the facts are. Whereas mainstream journalists or normal people 
while they have their biases, are at least trying to stick with some broad examples of reality. So it's really tough. How do you scale something that needs to be one-on-one in a world that's gone totally virtual and that the big tech companies want to make even more virtual? You know, I always say like the only problem with today's social media is that while you're staring at it 24-7, you still can notice some things in real life in your peripheral vision, you know, and the metaverse is like here to solve that. So now you won't even have that at all, you know, because you'll be wearing your goggles. That's one of those things, right? Like where we just never have to to live in the real world, which is why I think going back to your book, going through it and reading it, I feel like the beginning of the pandemic was the first time in a long time that a lot of us had to contend with the analog world in a real tangible way all day, every day, whether or not it was during lockdown or you probably remember going to the grocery store. You know, you had your mask on, you had a hat on, you had gloves on, and then all this stuff. And then, you know, you hosed down everything, you know, you threw your clothes in the laundry, like you took a shower, like suddenly living was like a thing again. You know, that moment in the pandemic, although it was scary and weird and, you know, confusing, I feel like of all the moments of 2020, that was the most depressing that we lost this moment because I was walking with my kid one day around the block and he was 13 at the time and he was sort of asking what you would imagine school had just shut down nba you know everything he was into for sure was closed sports friends everything and you know for most of us it was the first time ever and he was asking all these questions like my mother-in-law lives with us and she's in her 80s is she going to be okay are our other grandparents going to be okay when is school going to start you know and i had no idea like everybody else usually as a parent you can make that shit up but i had no clue and there was this moment where if we had had even semi-decent leadership, it was a moment when somebody could have said, you know, we've been fighting and arguing for so long and hating on each other. Let's not hate each other more than we hate a virus. Let's like lock arms virtually six feet apart and fight this thing together and just put all these minor details where they belong and focus on this big issue, which is, you know, living. And instead, of course, we got more of the hate, more of the lies, more of the divisiveness. Not that that was a surprise, But that was sort of the thing that still depresses me the most. If Trump had done it, he would be president now, I'm pretty sure, if he had gone that direction. So there would be downsides. But it just felt like there was this moment where, I mean, forget about globally doing it, even though it's humans versus a virus. But at least in America, I hope that people could say like, hey, how can we help each other out? And of course, in person to person, you know, you said it right. We had to go back and live in the real world. So, you know. We were dropping off stuff for our neighbors. We were providing food for people. Restaurants were hooking up, health workers. You know, at the grassroots level, normal human behavior actually did return when we reached out and realized our common humanity. But online and in the media, the divide just kept hitting and hitting. Right before the pandemic, my wife had forgotten. She signed up for one of those subscriptions from Amazon that gives you like 24 rolls of the super large northern toilet tissue. And she totally forgot it. And we were like, you know, racing people in the aisles like everybody else and shoving people out of the way to get a little bit of tissue, you know. And one day that just landed on our doorstep, like end of March 2020. And I mean, it was incredible. But the first thing we did was like drive around to the both family members and maybe people we want to influence, you know. Let's see if this person can maybe promote your book at some point. And we like dropped a toilet paper roll on their doorstep. And it was like we were conquering heroes driving around the neighborhood, getting applause from people, you know. So it was like this togetherness offline and so much inspiration offline, you know. Not all of 2020 was bad actors doing bad things. There were millions of people who did incredible things for each other. But 
it just died at the messaging level. Well, we talk about that a lot. We hear a lot about that. What about the messaging? What about the messaging? What about the messaging? And I kind of say like, you know, messaging is important, but usually it's based on action, deed, belief. Like it has to be rooted in something. And I think you talked about the two different ways that the world is communicated via just cable news, for example. In her book, Twilight of Democracy, Ann Applebaum talks about that specifically, which is democratic societies fail when they can no longer agree on a common discussion, right? We don't have a common discussion in this country anymore. We have one side that lives to create the fiction that they want their people to believe and their people to consume for a particular reason. And another side, unfortunately, there's obviously a lot of overlap here, but, you know, politically, another side that wants to either believe that what's happening isn't really happening or, well, it's happening, but what am I supposed to do about it? And, you know, that's sort of where we come in a lot, Dave, is like, this is really happening and this is what you're going to have to do about it, whether it makes you feel good or not, right? Winning a conflict often requires you to do things you would not otherwise spend your time doing because otherwise you're just capitulating. And I think that that's one of the things that, from our perspective, makes the Fox News, OAN, and Bannon, Breitbart stuff so dangerous is it's so efficient. It's so effective at moving messages so fast. And sometimes it bubbles out at 4chan or 8chan or whatever it is. And so the flywheel sometimes spins top to bottom and sometimes it spins bottom to top. But whatever it is, it moves very quickly, very efficiently. And there doesn't seem to be any you know, MSNBC and CNN are not an antidote to that. Right. I mean, you look at Bannon turning himself in today, you know, it's like if you look at it from a legal perspective, it's like, great, somebody finally got momentarily arrested for breaking the law. But from a marketing perspective, it's like a dream come true for Bannon. He was like promoting his podcast on the way in. But I think a lot of times we also on our side of the aisle one of the big problems we have. And by our side of the aisle, I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about Democrat or Republican. I'm talking about people who are in favor of liberal democracy and people who aren't. And, you know, Freud used to call this the narcissism of small differences. And I think so many people on the side of liberal democracy, especially now, are focusing so much of their energy on these small triggering things, you know, like, okay, you were a Republican and backed candidates that I might have not agreed with. You know, I don't give a shit right now, man. You're on the side of liberal democracy. Where do I write the check? How do I get on your show? How do I team up with you? I couldn't care less about those minor political differences when we're in a major political fight, you know? And on the left, we see it even more extreme about somebody said a word I didn't like. Somebody wasn't as woke as I was hoping they'd be. Therefore, I'm going to cancel them or I'm going to spend cycles having that debate. Now, of course, I want more equality and I want people to use better language and I want people to treat each other better also. But right now we are in the middle of a war for the future of America. And anybody who is on the side of liberal democracy, I say, I'm on that team with you and I'm happy that you joined. I don't care if we agree politically. I don't care if you say everything perfectly. What I really care about is that we make the moves necessary so that all the things that are important to us as a group don't get ruined by the Supreme Court or Congress or a president. You know, it's like these huge issues and it just plays into the hands, unfortunately, of the other side when we attack each other over these minor things. You know, to that point, whatever needs to happen to bend the arc of history towards justice will not happen if we are not successful here, if we're not victorious 
in what is, I think, likely to be the grand battle of our time. It's not the Middle East. It's not Afghanistan. This will be the defining era for our generation and our kids' generation, right? Because it's in our grandkids' generation. They're the ones that are really going to live most of the time through it. And listen, I've had conversations with several people in a couple of groups in the last week, thankfully, who are coming around to that, right? Like one guy said last week, my wife and I are big Bernie Sanders supporters. We're big Elizabeth Warren supporters, but we're putting our progressive shoes in the closet for right now because we realize that as progressive as we are in the things we believe in, maybe not everyone else believes in that. And if our beliefs and pushing those things as loud and as proud as we can drive other people who we need in this coalition away, then you know what? As you said, like, let's lock arms. AOC to Liz Cheney, right? You know, I worked for George W. Bush. Say whatever you want about George W. Bush and his presidency. I thought we were doing things for the right reasons. You know, history will be the judge of that, unfortunately. But here we are. Like, you want to scream and yell at me one-on-one? -on -one, like, have at it. But like, are you going to get on, on board with us? Are you going to ride this train with us? Or are you going to decide, no, my very specific thing is more important than whatever else it is you all are working on, and I'm happy to derail it. And I think you're right. The narcissism of small things is exactly the right way to put it. I'm going to steal that. One of the big ironies I saw during this infrastructure bill, which is a perfect example of something that's overcovered by the media, you don't need to know every little word that every single politician says behind closed doors as they're negotiating a bill. It's a republic government, you know? It's like you vote, and if the people do what you want, you vote for them again. If they don't, you don't vote for them again. Otherwise, your job is to live your life, not to focus on every play of the game, you know? But even then, right, like, I mean, what should be a big win for President Joe Biden and Democrats in Congress and something that Democrats can and should run on in 2022 is now being, to your point, parsed within an inch of its life. And the argument is about what the progressives wanted and didn't get, and so therefore they wouldn't vote for it. And the 13 Republicans who did vote for it, the progressives are like, we didn't get our social safety net when we wanted it, so go fuck yourselves. And the 13 Republicans are now going to face death threats. Like, that's where we are. And just to close the point on this, I mean, again, having grown up in Republican politics and worked in Republican campaigns, very hierarchical, top to bottom. And now that has morphed from a hierarchical political party to a hierarchical authoritarian movement with, you know, Trump generally sits at the top and then there's all these little Jenga pieces that make it up. But in that world, Tucker Carlson has power, right? Like real power. He's not elected to anything. He's never been elected to anything, but he could make or ruin a candidate's career based on what he says about them on their show. Democrats are horizontal. You've got the president, you've got the vice president, you've got the speaker, you've got the leader, you've got all these other folks. And like, is Rachel Maddow influential? Yeah. But like, could she derail someone's candidacy? I suppose if she spent a lot of time and energy on it, she probably could. But A, she wouldn't. And B, she caters to a fairly narrow band of Democrats in the United States, I'd think. Right. As opposed to Tucker Carlson has, you know, however many millions of people a night listening to him. And what he says is gospel to tens of millions of Americans. It's just a different way of seeing the world, a different way of organizing politically. Neither one is perfect because there's no such thing as perfection. But one is very, very powerful, very well resourced and very well disciplined. And the other one could be as well resourced, but is completely undisciplined. I guess it's the old Will Rogers line, right? I'm not part of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. So this is not a new phenomenon, but it's sort of like 
you got to climb out of the shell that you've lived in your entire life to sort of see what the world as it is, not the world that you remember it or you'd like it to be. Right. That's it. This moment just calls for something else. I don't care what Republican you worked for or anybody else. I don't care what Liz Cheney's politics are outside of one issue, which is pro-democracy and pro-reality. I hope that more Democrats come over to that feeling, you know, not necessarily when they're debating a bill, their job is to push their views. But in the big picture, we just don't really have much time here to uh, get the team together and on the same page, you know. I didn't think it would be this bad in 2021, honestly. I thought some people would fall off as Trump got voted out, left office, and moved to the side. But obviously, we're seeing a much, much broader issue. Power for power's sake is a pretty toxic but enjoyable drug, you know, maybe even more fun than Twitter. No, look, I mean, as you say that, uh, Maggie Haberman, a longtime, very prominent correspondent for The New York Times, tweeted this just a little while ago says, quote, it gets underrated that there are Republican lawmakers who either like aspects of what Trump did or like him personally, not merely all a fear based proposition. That's right. Marjorie Taylor Greene's not afraid of Donald Trump. She digs it. Paul Gosar digs it. Michael Flynn loves it. Bannon wants more. These are people who believe this stuff is kooky and crazy and weird as we think they are, have enormous sway and enormous impact on millions of Americans minds. Yeah. For people who see that as crazy or whatever, I think it's important to direct our ire at the people who are no better and are spreading the false message as opposed to people who are the recipients of that message because it's tempting to hate everybody who voted for Trump, but we need some of them to come over to this coalition. And if you look at the COVID numbers right now, last week the New York Times reported there's 3X deaths in deep red Trump country than there is in bright blue Biden country. So what we see as crazy or we see as hilarious or we see as ridiculous, people are willing to die for that. And I always say the first victim of any political lie are the people who believe that lie. And people are literally paying for it with their lives. And you said earlier, like you go to a soccer game, you're not talking about politics. It's like people don't just live for politics now. They're literally dying for it. And hating them is just not going to work. You know, if some guy is willing to be intubated, still saying, this is a hoax. That person is not going to be uh, moved over to our side of the equation because we tweet some nasty shit about them, you know? I do understand the anger brewing on the other side of the political aisle, especially in rural America and some other places. I always put myself in the boots of a coal mine worker as opposed to somebody out here on the West Coast like I am with a bunch of investors who made a billion bucks on photo apps and now they're working on solar stuff, you know? But All of the solar movement, all of the alternative energy movement is always about saying how terrible coal is and how terrible that way of thinking and how terrible those politics are. And here we have the answer to save the world. I'm in favor of alternative fuels also. We need it. But the first thing you have to say to somebody who's been working in the coal mine for three generations is thanks. Like, we get it. You powered our country. We understand that your grandfather died of black lung, your dad has black lung, and when you sit around the table, they say, hey, this is a sacrifice we make, but it's worth it because you're powering America. Somebody on the coast has to say, we hear you, and if we're going to change from coal to solar, then we're going to build the factories there where you are, and you're going to get those jobs. You know, I always thought one of the moments was so telling on the way that I think people on my side of the aisle, or I don't even know if he is anymore, but sort of 
view the rest of the country was when a couple of years ago Zuckerberg did this like global tour of every oh my state. God. It was so And it's awful. like, what are you visiting a zoo, dude? It's like if you want to connect with people, open a Facebook office in rural America. They don't want to be viewed as zoo animals. They're humans just like the rest of us are. Yeah, look, I mean, I worked on several presidential campaigns. I spent a lot of time in early primary states like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. What I always said was the thing that always surprised me the most but shouldn't have was that the National Press Corps, who would start to descend on these places, would treat Iowans as if it was like an anthropological visit, right? Like, look at the people in Iowa. They do more than eat pork chops and eat fried butter. And like, well, of course they do, you asshole. <laughs> like, what did you think happens when you step outside the osmotic bubble of the Acela Corridor? Like, life does go on. Yeah, I mean, we see that in media also, you know, the portrayal of rural Americans or small town Americans in most TV shows with a few exceptions like Friday Night Lights is just so horrible. You know, it's like the Fargo effect. They all are just portrayed as just complete imbeciles, you know? So of course people are like pissed and, you know, then you have a political message that comes in and says, hey, all these people on the coast look down on you and they're so terrible, you know? And it's like, of course that's going to divide people. So even on a subtle levels, I think we have to make certain decisions in our own personal lives and social media and tweeting to say, I'm not going to just hate for the hell of it so I get a few more likes, you know? It just doesn't make sense. If I'm going to hate on somebody, yeah, the manufacturers of those messages, the spreaders of those messages, the people that are choosing power over democracy, you know, that's what you guys do, right? Let's hammer those people to kingdom come, but let's not extend that message and say, everybody who votes a different way than me is evil, you know, or everybody that felt like when Trump came out and said, hey, this guy talks how I talk, let's not downplay that or whatever. A friend of mine was at one of the last rallies that Trump held. And some guy, you might remember, the mic wasn't working. And Trump started yelling, hey, find me the guy who set this up. He needs to be fired immediately. And he wasn't joking, you know? No, I know that guy. I know that guy. And he was fired immediately. Yeah, that's amazing. Arizona. So, you know, in my America, everybody on Twitter and in journalism, Twitter was like saying, oh, this is it, man. This is the last straw for Trump. He's like criticizing the working man, you know? But a friend of mine who is also from the coast was actually covering that. And he was talking to people in the audience and they said, oh, man, thank God. Finally, somebody in politics is not fake and talks the way my boss talk. Anybody at my job who fucked this up this bad, that's exactly what they'd be hearing. Oh, this guy is gone, man. And it's like they found that refreshing. And we have to wake up to the fact that there are these huge divides and messaging and communication that we think we know what's happening and we really don't know. And the only way we can do it is, you know, get into that crowd maybe not have a Trump rally because that's the extreme, but get into other parts of America and actually have a conversation. These are such small differences compared to the risk that's facing us as a community right now. I think that's right, Dave. And I think that's a good place for us to leave it today. But I hope that you will come back and see us again before November of next year. Before we get out of here, please tell us about Next Draft and where listeners can connect with you online. Sure. Next Draft is a, a place where I look at the day's most fascinating news. It's sort of a modern day column, very much personality driven. I go to 75 sites and I come up with the top 10 stories of the day. I give you enough for your dinner party, but if you want to click, you can visit the whole story. And people can find that at nextdraft.com. And if people are interested in Please Scream Inside Your Heart, my book, you can just type in pleasescream.com and it'll take you to the right page. Right. And where can we find you on Twitter? At Dave Pell. 
P-E-L-L. And hopefully I'll live up to some of the goals I set for myself today. Well, amen. Listen, all we can do is hope for that. And as always, gang, you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Dave Pell, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.